Welcome to Senlightened, a podcast for those playing a supportive role in the life and education of a child with special educational needs. Hosted by leading special educational needs mentor Amanda Sokel, this podcast aims to guide and support carers, educators, and parents on the journey to help our little ones thrive. Hello, I'm Amanda Sokel. This episode, I speak with an educator who encourages parents and teachers to find solutions together. The school's role, I believe, to act as a facilitator to help the parents and the teachers in many cases to find the information that they need in order to understand the children better. Originally from Ireland, Catherine O'Farrell is a consultant in education whose work spans the globe from Australia to the Middle East and she's a regular media contributor and conference speaker. Catherine is currently Group Head of Student Services at Bloom Education in the UAE from where she hosts a forum for inclusion and wellbeing practitioners. Every fortnight, experts from the UK and Singapore come together to discuss practice and methodology towards improving outcomes for students with diverse needs. As you'll hear, she sees the debate around inclusion or exclusion of children with special needs in classrooms as a complicated beast. And she encourages parents of children with special needs to seek answers from a wide variety of people and places. I'm delighted to share Catherine's educational perspective with you today. Good morning. So I'm delighted to introduce um, to invite Catherine into our space today, uh, particularly to share some thoughts from an education perspective. So Catherine, do you want to just tell us a little bit about you? Thank you very much for having me, Amanda. I think the the journey you're on and the endeavour that you are working toward is really, really valuable. Making that bridge between schools and families for our most vulnerable students is, is vitally, vitally important. It's a very often a, a very broad bridge to cross or wide bridge, however you'd say it. So I began, as you mentioned, I began my career as a primary school teacher in Ireland. I taught in Ireland for about six years. And when I was teaching, I had these huge classes of up to 36 kids across multiple classes and the diversity of their needs, the neurodiversity, the cognitive diversity, the the amount of difference between child A and child B was huge. And it absolutely fascinated me. And I was hyper aware that as a primary teacher, we just didn't have enough information about how to service those needs in a, a really meaningful manner. So I embarked then on a Bachelor of Science in Psychology so that I could learn more about what was going on inside those little heads. And I did that while I was teaching. So I did a distance learning with the Open University in the UK. And um, a lot of it was cognitive psych and child psych. So I got to kind of practice and trial and possibly not hugely ethical, but I tried a lot of the things that I was learning about and I was looking for them. I could see a lot of these conditions in the kids with whom I was working and I wouldn't have identified them 
unless I had studied that course. And I know that a lot of teachers back then, perhaps less so now in, in the UK and Ireland, I think university BEDs are, are a bit more cognizant of it. But back then, there's no way I would have been identifying the intricacies of ASD or or dyscalculia. Like it, I would have just said something like, oh, he struggles a bit with math or she's she's not great with communication. It would have slipped. The milder needs for sure were slipping through the cracks. So from there, I taught in Ireland for another year or two. And then I went on to... Australia and the UK, teaching in different settings there. And I started practicing as a psychologist as well in clinic and um, private practice counselling and psychotherapy. I just wanted to talk a little bit more about that experience that you had as a first teacher. Mm -hmm. So tell me how that felt to go into this classroom. It sounds like largely an unprepared state. What, What was that like for you? I didn't know that I was unprepared, to be honest. It was just an awareness that I wasn't quite meeting their needs. And I think as a primary educator in rural settings where you've got huge classes, you realise how diverse kids can be, where you've got really highly able kids and kids who are highly able but have these huge barriers to learning. So you see a lot of diversity and it was an awakening. Doing the the psych degree was a huge awakening because I was seeing things that I hadn't seen before and that I know I wouldn't have seen. And I think that's a a real challenge for teachers because a B.Ed. is a B.Ed. It's an education degree. It's not meant to be a psychology degree. They're not meant to fully understand the intricacies of, of cognition. And we expect so much of our teachers that is, it's kind of not fair a lot of the time, but in a way, it's not fair on kids or parents and families that they are not trained in it. But then you're looking in the reality, do we extend the B.Ed. degree to make it five, six years and include a year or two of psych? And that in itself is huge complications and challenges in terms of the workforce that is already sadly lacking qualified teachers. So it's a huge, like it really is a meta challenge for for the world <laughs> it is isn't it it is yeah. and, and as a newly qualified teacher what I mean obviously you took the decision to do a psychology degree which not everybody can do what other support was available to you at that time where did you go to help get help for the kids or help for myself and my educational help, degree help for yourself in in just you know you recognize that you weren't necessarily able to meet the needs that's what I think you said so you know that as a teacher when most teachers I know want to do the best for their children and how did that feel and and where where was their help where did you start I, I was lucky in that number one my family were exceptionally supportive which kind of on a very practical level my parents paid for my first round of university so I didn't have that debt that would have been a barrier to me perhaps my principles the first number of principles I had were very supportive in terms of if there was a need they were always open and willing to discuss the kids cases individually and to present them for support within the Irish system the Irish system is really quite progressive in terms of supporting students with need. However, being a well-established system is quite bureaucratic, so delays are very common. And um, while 
the whole ethos of the system is good and supportive. The fact that it's good and supportive lends itself to the fact that there are multiple steps and qualifications. And ultimately, you could have a kid waiting six to eight months before they're accurately identified and supported in class. But I think the awareness in Ireland was really ballooning at the time. That was back in, I qualified in 2005. And I think that was a huge, almost like a springboard for me to say, okay, it's not just me. The whole system sees that this is an issue and something that we need to investigate more. And my interest, the moment I started reading about cognition and neurodiversity, I just got sucked in completely. So my interest was a big, a big driving force there as well. That's great. And so you, as you said, you left Ireland and went on a world trip by the sound of things. Were you teaching when you were travelling? Yeah, I taught periodically between doing a range of multiple things like telemarketing, traffic controlling, sales, everything. But I was teaching periodically. So I got experience in the Australian system, which was hugely progressive as well. Very much reflective of the Irish and the UK systems in terms of their move toward inclusive education. Then went to Edinburgh and found a system again quite inclusive and progressive in its practice. Then I came to the Middle East and found a system that was literally just taking that first step on the journey toward inclusion with a leadership here that is really visionary in terms of where they know they want to go, but the infrastructure here isn't there yet. So there's huge differences and disparities between what the vision is and the the policy in certain emirates. So the UAE is divided into seven counties, essentially. They're called emirates and each one has its own policy and they're hugely varied. Like some are still quite exclusive and some are inclusive. If you look towards countries like Kuwait, Saudi and and some of the other GCC countries, they're still very, very much on the medical model, exclusion, separation, segregation. And it, it really opens your eyes as to the importance of firm leadership and policy from a federal level. And you talk a lot about inclusion and exclusion. So tell me about your perspective on inclusion. There's a big push, certainly here in the UK, there has been for many years to include children with differences in the mainstream classroom. We've lost a lot of the specialist provision. Is that the answer to inclusion? Having seen inclusion from the UK and Ireland's perspective, and then coming here, I think it is a really, really complex beast. Like here, they're pushing toward inclusion and the version of inclusion here is take every kid with every diverse need and bung them in a mainstream classroom. And that absolutely, in my opinion, does not work. If you have a child who has moderate to severe needs, they may not be in the right place in a mainstream classroom. Some may, but it has to go on an individual bespoke case by case basis. Like profound needs, I don't believe are necessarily serviced adequately in a mainstream classroom, unless you've got specialized teachers and practitioners with them or guiding the school in a really, really in-depth manner. It doesn't work because the kids are equally excluded They're just sitting in a class full of typically functioning kids, but they're not accessing anything that they need. They may not be accessing education, life skills, even socially. And that's not integration either. Probably, I think the best practice is to assess a child's needs individually, 
if they need specialist provision, allow for that within a specialist centre, give them access perhaps to mainstream school through transitional classes, if that's what's appropriate to them. But it, it's a really complicated beast. Inclusion doesn't come in just one shape or form. Inclusion is building a, a system and a society that can help remove barriers for people to access services, education, social structures. It's not about kind of just taking a group of people and putting them somewhere. It's building your system, like something as simple as wheelchair ramps or or accessibility through funding for different things. That's where the system accommodates rather than the person being accommodated in one bubble of the system. Does that make sense? It does. And I love I love the fact that, like me, you're a systems thinker. And yeah. I think that's one of the challenges is that we don't necessarily stop and think about the system around. We, we're down in the micro level rather than stepping back. So, so tell me a little bit about the evolution maybe that you've seen out there in the UAE since you arrived in terms of that sort of infrastructure and system being put in place. So I've been here about 10 years. And when I came first there, I was in Dubai and Dubai is easily the most advanced in terms of inclusive policy and probably practice of the Emirates. And they had this almost copy and paste inclusive policy from the UK, but they were implementing a policy or trying to implement a policy that was reflective of a hugely complex system that simply wasn't here. So they would have guidelines and still do, it's still evolving, where we would have guidelines and and legislative policy for things like every school has to employ their own LSA uh, shadow teachers say, and they've given us ratios. So for every 125 kids, you have to have a shadow teacher employed by the school to service those diverse needs. But there aren't enough shadow teachers. So the system can't service that legislative policy. Another would be that you have to provide access to, say, an OT or an SLT or an ed psych. And we've got about 125 schools in Dubai and probably only about 20 quality centers that have these practitioners. So again, the system doesn't support that policy. So in a way, it's very visionary, but the actual reflection on where the landscape that we're in isn't accurate. But if you move to, say, one of the Northern Emirates is called Sharjah, it's like literally like counties. If you move to Sharjah, their inclusive policy is much more backward in terms of they don't have real clear guidelines for a lot of things but what they do have is reflective of the landscape they're in so they've actually engaged with the community they've spoken with schools spoken with parents they've seen where the cultural understanding is which is very very bespoke to this region where the educational capacity for provision is where the medical capacity for provision is and they're slowly building a policy so I think that give it another five or 10 years, that will be a lot more useful to its landscape than what we have in the more, what is seen as progressive Dubai. Understood, understood. I'm really interested in the relationship between parents of children with special educational needs and differences and the educators who 
are trying to make the right provision for them. And that can sometimes be very positive relationship. And other times it can be really quite a difficult relationship for a whole host of reasons. How should parents interact with with educators if they think their child has some challenges that may or may not have been picked up? What would your recommendations be? My main recommendation is not to be afraid and that it's okay to be vulnerable and it's okay to not know. We have so many parents who they're so afraid of saying they don't know what, what it is that's different about their child because there's this assumption that parents should know everything about their child. They're the primary care. They should know everything. But sometimes I often use the analogy with teachers and with parents, like as teachers and parents, we're kind of like your backstreet garage mechanic where you kind of can just fix every typical car and work with them, drive them, whatever. And it's a very kind of a rough analogy. But when you get a kid with special needs or who is has really complex needs, it's like sticking a Ferrari in front of that backstreet mechanic and saying, work with us. And it's a system that is so complicated and complex. And we're expecting people without training, without specialization to just go ahead and and know. And that's not fair. And it's the school's role, I believe, to act as a facilitator to help the parents and the teachers in many cases to find the information that they need in order to understand the children better. So I would say don't be afraid to be vulnerable. And I think that advice works equally well for teachers as well, doesn't it? Because I think as parents, we often think teachers should have the answers. But but as you've just stated, you know, most teachers don't have the expertise or the training to identify some of these challenges and differences. So, yes, that's good advice for both parties, I think. Yeah, yeah. And it's quite terrifying as either a parent or a teacher when you come across something that you don't know or may never have experienced in your whole community or your family before. And the behaviours that accompany complex needs can be really challenging. And it's hard for a parent. And the last year, I think, has really, really highlighted just how hard it is where parents have been at home trying to be educators, trying to be parents, trying to be friends and playmates and It's relentless. It's relentless when you've got a child with complex needs and it's relentless for the child as well, because they also, for the most part, know that there is a difference. So that's why it's not just important to take the parent and the teacher on the journey, but take the child on the journey as well and say, well, we think there's something that might be different. Let us all find out together. And I am a great advocate of keeping it open with the children, no matter what it is talk to your child about it, let them know that this is what's going on so that they too can be part of the growth and and education and understanding of their own needs. We see so many parents, particularly in this region, who think, oh, we can't talk to our kids about it. Like, what good will it do them to know that they've got autism or they've got this or they've got that? I think in, in my 15 years experience or so, being open with your child is much more beneficial and effective in terms of of moving along that journey together. I think you're right. I have a a model which is um, the three kind of 
most important things in my view, which are empathy, expertise and environment. It's like a Venn diagram of circles. And the intersection between empathy and expertise is accepting. And one of the things I hear time and time again is firstly parents that struggle to accept that they have a child that has difficulties and also children that aren't aware and therefore don't really accept themselves as individuals. And I know that my youngest son had all kinds of challenges. And when we finally got an ASD diagnosis, we were able to help him understand. He was seven at the time. So we were able to help him understand. And it, it gave him some sense of acceptance of himself. It really turned a corner. And I saw it also with our our eldest who has dyslexia, who was really struggling with his own identity relative to his peers. And once he realised there was a reason why he was struggling, he was, again, much more accepting of himself. So I agree. I personally think keeping the children at an age appropriate level aware of what might or might not be the case is is really helpful. Yeah. And like knowledge is empowering. The more you know, the more you understand. And again, that leads into empathy and empathy from all sides. The more you understand your own needs, the more you'll understand why other people might react to you in certain ways. And if a child understands that, okay, they may be challenging to interact with, then it can help them to understand why certain kids might find it difficult to interact with them in certain ways or why certain kids get cross with them easily and that it's not them as a a character, as a person, that it's, okay, this is a characteristic of a need that I have that elicits this kind of reaction. And that can be liberating for them in, in a lot of cases in terms of just that emotional release that they don't carry that burden of, am I a horrible person, which they very often do. Yes, yes. And and actually, I've seen the other side of that. So again, my, my youngest son in year six of primary school kept coming up against another child. And it became quite a strained relationship where there was lots of difficult interactions and lots of conversations with the school about can we just keep these two children separate because it's causing such a problem. And I remember later explaining some of the backstory of this child and my son suddenly going oh my goodness now I understand he's just like me because <laughs> personal space and sensory processing is some of his challenges and once he realized that this other boy was just like him he suddenly forgave all of this behavior it was really really helpful and interesting to see a sort of 10 11 year old come to that realization I found it profoundly effective when I was a class teacher, if I had diverse needs in the class, I would seek parental consent and then I would openly in our class discussion with the kids as young as KG. And I've had a lot of pushback from this approach, but as young as KG, talk about everyone's needs. So if we had a child who was really hypersensitive to loud noises that we talk about it and say, well, this is why such and such would react in this way because of this. This is why another child might react in this way because of this. And we need all to be mindful. And the difference that you see in terms of the children's tolerance within the class, I found was huge just by getting it out in the open. And a lot of practitioners would say to me, oh, you're opening the door to bullying and to discrimination, to isolation and all of that. Yes, that could be possible. But in my practice, I haven't found it to be the case. 
No. And I think if it's done well, you're right. And I certainly, in my son's first primary school, there was huge acceptance for all kinds of different needs because the school had a... It comes back to the environment, doesn't it? The environment was such that everybody felt accepted. Everybody felt like it was just, it was a learning process. They were growing, they were learning about each other and their differences. And and actually they were all very um, supportive and caring for one another rather yeah. than bullying. So I think if it's done correctly, it, it, it absolutely can be very powerful. Yeah. Yeah. I, f- I found it really effective to have that open dialogue and you find it even reflective then in parents because the kids are going home talking about it. So you have a lot less of the kind of eye rolling at pickup time where you've got a kid who's causing a big delay in the doorway because they won't pick up their bag or they've got the wrong water bottle and they're having a little meltdown. And you have the other parents when they're ill-informed be like, oh, you know, they get get frustrated. But when everybody knows what's going on and that there's diversity in terms of needs, that is very much alleviated. And that's really effective. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, so Catherine, tell me if you were talking to your newly qualified self, you know, teacher just out of teacher training of whatever form, and they've identified you know, a challenging child in the classroom, not really sure what's going on. They've maybe got parents constantly complaining about this child and what, you know, the behaviour with the other children, or they've got the parent of the child kind of asking for help and not knowing what to do. What would your advice to that teacher be? Ask, ask as many people as you can for advice. The best learning I ever got was from people who'd experienced it before, experienced similar cases before. Approach other teachers, more experienced teachers and approach parents who have similar kids and ask as much as you can. Go to Google, research everything you can. Go to your local centres like specialist centres, medical centres, talk to doctors, talk to anyone, like anyone who has specialised information or It's just learning. It's trying to soak in information about different tactics or methodologies that have worked in different settings because every child is unique. Like one dyslexic child can be completely different to another dyslexic child and supporting them like you, you have to have almost like this big briefcase of methods or or kind of tools that you can use because, okay, my I'm highlighting every second line on the reading and the kid isn't improving. What else can you do? You know, like it's you've got to have lots and lots of different things to try. So that's probably my best advice. Ask, ask, ask. And ask the parents as well, because they may also have some insight, presumably. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody, everybody, anybody who can tell you, ask. (laughs) I think that's a great way to end the conversation. Thank you so much for your time today, Catherine. And uh I look forward to connecting with you again in the future. It's been a real pleasure. And it's been a real pleasure talking to you about this kind of topic, because like I said, the book you're writing is really important. It's really important. And I can't wait until it comes out so I can read it from a systems (laughs) thinking perspective as well. There aren't enough of us. Well, watch this space. It's it's not going to be in the next couple of months. It's a long term, longer term project. But yes, I'm excited to be doing it. Yeah, it'll be great. 
That ends this episode of Senlightened with Amanda Sokel. For more information and to contact Amanda, please go to community.amandasokel.com.